HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. No matter how much you choose to give, you'll feel awesome next time you tune in, knowing that we wouldn't be here without you. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Plus, we have great member swag. Show up your HRN pride with a t-shirt or keep your hands safe in the kitchen with an HRN potholder. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening.
Good morning and welcome to Heritage Radio. This is The Line and I'm your host, Eli Sussman. My guest today is Chef Alex Dubak. He's the owner and chef of Empeon in Midtown, Al Pastor in the East Village, and the Taqueria in the West Village. He attended the Culinary Institute of America on a full scholarship, and then he did an externship at Clio in Boston. He then worked at True in Chicago, The Federalist also in Boston, Alinea, and WD50 in New York. His own restaurants have made top 10 lists at multiple outlets, including New York Magazine, the New York Times, and Empeon Cochina was named a James Beard Foundation Best New Restaurant semifinalist in 2013. Alex was named a Best New Chef by Food and Wine Magazine also in 2013, and he recently wrote a cookbook called Tacos and Provocations. Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start off by asking you the, the heavy, heavy question. Oh, boy. You have three restaurants open. You've been in the business a really long time. Are you happy where you're at professionally? Um, it, that's a tricky question. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of where we're at, but it, it's hard to take a moment and kind of be still. Um, as you in this day and age, or maybe it's just a choice. It's it, to me, it's like either close two restaurants and go back to one and just live in that one until you die, or now it's time to grow the thing as big as humanly possible and really start to flourish the talent around you. So when you say grow the thing, you have three uh, restaurants. They're all quite different. They exist at at different price points and in different actual geographical locations in New York. Uh, which one to you when you say grow the thing? Are you talking about potentially expanding all three or is there one that you think functions better as an expandable version of itself? Well, first of all, thank you for noticing what we've been trying to do in that we want to have places in different neighborhoods and try to make them of the place. And we want to have a diversity of price point because we feel that Mexican cooking doesn't have much of that. It's kind of relegated as cheap. And you see a lot of um, what's called fine dining, like some fine dining stuff popped up. I think um, I think Cosme is considered fine dining. I think the new Empeon is considered fine dining. But not like if you compare those to a place like La Bernaden or you know, not really. Right. Mm-hmm. So um is my vision now is to just take Empeon to other marketplaces and whether it's a down and dirty Al Pastor-esque thing or, uh, you know, a chef's counter or something high end or mid range, that's really a good, that's the cool thing where we can, it, it could be any of those. It just can be of the place as opposed to trying to jam in your, your sort of, um, your rigid concept over and over and over again. Cause maybe, uh, like no offense, but maybe you shouldn't have miso black cod in certain parts of the world because maybe you're bringing it in frozen. So, and, and I might be naive. Maybe maybe we can't do that. But that that's kind of the vision. So you come from a, a background of quite a few fine dining restaurants, and uh, I know that you've been involved in restaurants that have had Michelin stars, and you have a lot of chef friends that have Michelin starred restaurants. Is it a goal for you to try to take? Empeon Cochina or maybe a new spot that's not even open yet in your brain to a one, two, three Michelin star level? Are these, is this something that you're shooting for with your restaurant group? Um, yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, I think it's a tricky point because if you say, well, the stars don't matter and you don't have the stars, well, you just sound like a hater. Um, I, I would love a Michelin star, uh, simultaneously, I think you have to balance that 
that desire with um, being true to yourself. I, I think it could get really unhealthy as a chef um, or a restaurateur to start creating some sort of analytical list of what it would take to get the stars. But I mean, when it, like we can talk about New York Times stars for a minute. I have a I have a no star, a one star, and a three star. So I would love for my no star to stay a no star. <laughs> I'm really I'm happy with it that way. I would love to figure out a way to get my one star re-review to become a two star, and I I would love to reopen Cocina and and make it that four star New York Times, uh, three Michelin star dining experience. Um, yeah, that that is a dream of mine. For those listening that aren't familiar with what happened with Cocina, uh, it existed for about five years. Mm -hmm. uh, it is no longer. You tried a couple of iterations there. Uh, one of them was you had a, a tasting menu element right. that existed there. That, uh, to sort of an outside perspective, would be the thing that could potentially work as attracting that sort of the upper echelon Michelin star, four stars, uh, are you working? Do you workshop that at any of your other restaurants? Do you do a twenty-course tasting menu anywhere currently? Do you do it privately in the kitchen every once in a while to kind um, of keep keep that idea tight in your head? Not yet. I, the the idea is tight in my head, and the lists exist, and we are contemplating uh, having our kitchen table, which lived in the back of Cocina, live again in in Midtown. Um, Will we do it or not? I, again, it's tricky because I, sometimes I fear, even if you do a better version of it, it's not, some of the people who loved it at Cocina won't love it as much in Midtown. It's like it's like when a punk rock band does a studio album or something. It's like you, you gain a new set of followers, but you um, actually put off another set. Uh, so I don't know if that answers the question, but it's a little tricky. But we, we have dishes that are in our heart and in our mind that we cannot express on an a la carte menu and they they do need to exist somewhere so there is a bit of creative angst right now i want to jump way way back and talk about where these ideas started forming in your head from a very young age you've been involved in food you were in a kitchen with your dad at a very young age you faked your way into a restaurant in order to get hired basically by lying and saying that you were older so that they'd hire you you pretty much have known nothing else, right? Besides food, it's been your right, yeah. your 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 life's work. So, I'm curious when you were at what age did you think to yourself, "I'm set. This is this is what I'm what I'm gonna do." And do you remember like a very specific moment when you thought, "I could make a career out of this. I could make a life out of this." Um, yeah, I I, I remember. Uh, reading a, a cookbook that was in my, my parents' pantry. And I remember I, w I would always, this was back when like real cooking shows were much more common. You would watch like PBS and you'd see like Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and, you know, great chefs of San Francisco. You'd watch all these shows. So you'd get excited. So you'd grab some cookbook out of, out of your parents' kitchen and thumb through it, just trying to find anything you could make with whatever meager <laughs> ingredients are in your home kitchen. So the, the recipe I found that I could make was for Russian dressing. Because all it required was mayonnaise, ketchup, and relish, and I think it said lemon juice optional. So that was the first thing I cooked, and I used it to dress a salad and gave it to my mother, and it made her happy. Um, and I think someone like as someone who's like naturally introverted, I, I at a subconscious level at a young age, I got really attracted to the idea that this was a way to 
transmit something to people or to, to communicate with people. When you grew up a little bit and you th- saw that this could definitely be a career path, you ended up going to the CIA. Mm-hmm. How did you choose CIA and what was that experience like for you as an introvert, but someone who definitely knew that this was what they want to do? I imagine that you were perhaps a lot more focused than other people that were at the CIA at that time. What was it like to interact with your peers? And, um, and this is obviously, you know, kind of pre internet, pre Instagram. It was sort of a different realm to be coming out of the CIA. It wasn't like, well, I can get on TV tomorrow and open my own restaurant. It was a different, there were only three jobs you could get. What were they? Yeah. Let's talk about that. It's chef, general manager, sommelier, the Mm -hmm. end. Those were the only things anyone ever wanted to be when they grew up. Uh, and now, yes, now there's people who went to Culinary Institute of America or any culinary school and they're like being a Instagram blogger or whatever you call it is a, is apparently a viable career because a lot of people are doing it. Yeah, indeed. I, I don't really understand how that became a thing, but for sure that that is a career trajectory. Now you can be, you can do recipe testing, you can do food videos, you can do all these different things when you were, when you were there and when you were coming out. Was your were you straight ahead focused? All right, I'm gonna go work garmanger, then I'm gonna be a sous, then I'm gonna open my own restaurant one day. Like, well, is that where your head was at? I, I I always knew I wanted my own restaurant one day, even though I didn't know what that meant or what it, I just knew it was just this thing in my head that I had to have. Uh, and other than that, my only game plan was that I'm gonna graduate and I'm gonna go work for Charlie Trotter. That's all I wanted to do. I was, you know reading his cookbooks all the time. I had all of them and I was studying every word the guy ever said. And I just found him to be an incredibly fascinating figure. Um, I could not get a job at Charlie Trotter's. Um, so I ended up uh, taking a job at True because I had moved to Chicago abruptly because I was so certain that I was going to get into this kitchen. It just didn't happen. Uh, but that was it. I, I never, and just, I had in my head that you know it's that classic line cook mentality, or at least it was back in the day of like, well, I'm going to work here a year and I'm going to go and work here a year. And you, you write this list of badass places that you dream of um, being at. And they didn't all work out. Actually, none of them worked out. Like, the plan went away. But um, that that was what was on top of mind, yeah. So if the, the Charlie Trotter plan didn't exactly work out, what was true like? Uh, what type of cuisine was it? And how was that experience? You, you know, did you know a lot of people in Chicago? Were you on your own? Young guy working at a kitchen, probably getting your ass kicked what was that experience yeah, like it, it was a tough time because i i when i graduated culinary school i was only 20 years old um so i couldn't drink which is kind of a big deal if you're trying to make friends with your peers in kitchens because i mean drinking is i mean it, that's part of cooking culture so it, it was hard to make friends so you did feel i did feel pretty isolated in uh chicago the first time i was there the kitchen was incredible i mean that was the first time where you know, I'd ever worked in a restaurant where like you weren't like you had better not have a single shallot touch the floor or, you know, like things like that, that really um, change the way it changed the way that you you look at everything like a, a kitchen should be dead silent and salt shouldn't be flung around everywhere. And the only correct answer to anything is yes, chef. Uh, so in that way, it was uh, it was very formative for me. And so where did you end up after true what was the next step on your on your culinary path um i i was out of money <laughs> you know I, w- I was trying to pay down um 
some college bills and I, and I was out of money. So I, I had no choice but to move back home with my parents for a minute because I couldn't afford my rent anymore. So after, um, after a year at True, I moved back to Massachusetts and then I got a job um, at the Federalist in Boston. And that became my first sous chef position which I'm not sure if I was qualified for that or not, but that it, that oddly segued into, I became the pastry chef of that restaurant. Um, and, I, and I did that for very bad reasons. And like I had in my head that I needed my name on a menu, that that's what mattered to me. And there was this opportunity to become the pastry chef there. And like, I didn't care about money. I didn't care what they paid me. All I wanted to do was make um, my own wannabe version of El Bulli food and have my name on the menu. And I ended up making desserts that were freakishly inappropriate uh, for this sort of stodgy, old-fashioned restaurant. How so? You Were you going, like, hyper-modern? Oh, yeah. Thing? It had, like, decon... I mean, what was modern at the time, like, it, like, deconstructed carrot cake and tried to make everything into a foam and tried to make hot things cold and cold things hot. Like, the, the whole... All that. And, I mean, you must have found it enjoyable because you kept doing pastry so was there something there in the uh in the specific detail oriented nature of it that that attracted you beyond the fact that you could play around and have things on the menu what kind of kept you working in pastry after that it, it, it so you become a pastry chef for the wrong reasons but then you you fall in love with it for all these things you didn't expect about it um one is that i mean again i love that I mean, pastry chefs are, for the most part, left alone in the restaurant. The, the chef generally is all thumbs with desserts or doesn't have an opinion on it. And you you kind of enjoy a, a, a greater sense of creative freedom while still being an employee under someone, which is very unusual. Um, but deeper than that, I really started to philosophically love um, the creative freedom of pastry and how much you can manipulate ingredients where... Manipulation is like, I guess it's an ugly word with savory cooking, whereas in pastry, let me describe it to you this way. It's like I could make you a dish of strawberries where you don't see any strawberries. The strawberry, it's just about flavor transmission, and you can start thinking about all the different ways you can manipulate a strawberry, whereas with a piece of fish, people are still, whether you saute it or grill it or roast it or whatever, you're still giving them a fish. Um, and that, that sort of deep sense of transformation, like the idea that bread is better than wheat or that wine is better than grapes. Um, so it, it really got under my skin in a very weird way. It, it kind of informed me into a segue of Mexican cooking and I don't think many people still understand it, but masa <laughs> is better than corn. And I just found it in mole is better than the 32 ingredients you blended to make it. And it's its own new flavor. It's not trying to taste like any one thing. So it seems like you gain an appreciation for the building of flavors and the composition of dishes when you started doing pastry through that manipulation process. Do you uh, can you talk about kind of uh, early on in your in your pastry career? Were you thinking that uh, there was a path for you back to the savory side of things, and that you were going to be using certain elements and skills that you were attributing to your desserts that you could then use in your in your own standalone restaurant, or were you kind of just really deeply rooted in the in your own sense of place right then in pastry? I didn't. I never thought about how pastry discipline was going to inform savory cooking later. I just had in my head that 
I've become very comfortable being a pastry chef. I'm enjoying it. And, but I want to open my own restaurant one day and I have no intention of opening a dessert only restaurant. I just, I've never believed in the idea of that. To me, to me, a great restaurant is it's everything. It's the service. It's the, it's the wine, it's the food, it's the whole thing. Um, and I was really going through sort of an existential crisis as to what it was going to be because to the point of modernity and, um, how to say it, you see Heston Blumenthal free something with liquid nitrogen and it changes your life. And then, you know, over the course of a decade, you, all you do is watch Top Chef and you can't see an episode without seeing some dude with a faux hawk and a bunch of, you know, sleeve tats pour liquid nitrogen over everything. So it's not, it's just because, well, what was once epiphanal is now commonplace. Mm -hmm. So you can't do that. So point being is that like if you were pedigreed to be the the next coming of this thing, it, but like you see where like I couldn't I couldn't do it. It actually what people were deeming as creative, what was becoming counter creative in my mind. It's it's cool because you you've been able to see uh, you know both sides for lack of a better analogy, like in a sports term, like you're really good at offense and defense. You can play both sides of the ball because you can do savory. You can do pastry. And like you said, some chefs, they just can't get their head around pastry. Do you think that that has, uh, made you a more valuable teacher chef owner? The fact that you had that background for many years and now you can sort of not only float to that station and have sort of a mastery of it, but does it also impact the way that you think about pastry and the the flow of the meal and savory and all the components that go into everything? I mean, I think it does. I mean, we were frustrated with the first three restaurants because, ironically, our dessert programs never caught on. You know, we, we've all eaten in restaurants in New York City or elsewhere where, um, let's say you're in an Italian restaurant and it's like the dessert menu looks like this. It's like here's a sorbet, a gelato, and a panna cotta. What that means is that here are some very easy-to-make things that are coming off of garmage. Right. And we don't have a pastry chef. Mm -hmm. And you do that when the desserts aren't an important part of the restaurant. There's something that you have to have, but um, you don't have to have them so much that you need to employ a pastry chef. So I was really happy with that desserts became such a thing at my newest restaurant, Empeon in Midtown. And I was I I wanted I was pissed off. I was pissed off that like, well, I have a background in this and I think that my opinions are valid, but. I like look at me. I, I have three restaurants with no goddamn pastry program. It, it, like, I, I, like shame on me. So, uh, I work with a, a very talented pastry chef. His name's Justin Binney, and yes, I work very closely with him. And it, it's good because I think it's good. I hope he enjoys working with me. But rather than a chef saying, "Give me a chocolate dessert," you know, I can we can talk in a much more. I say we speak the same language. We can talk about it in a much more granular way. Before we talk about some of the the desserts and the dishes at Empeon that I definitely want to discuss, I want to jump back to your time at Alinea Mm -hmm. and uh, talk about a little bit how you ended up there and, you know, what was that like working with that team as uh, as the things that were done at that restaurant have become sort of benchmarks in the same way that. Charlie Trotter and and El Bulli has done things like people look to that as a, a sort of a, a, a turning point in the history of sort of culinary exploration. Yeah. Um, Alinea was profound. 
uh, Grant Ackett is a genius, and I don't use that that word lightly. Uh, he's capable of doing several things um, extremely well all at the same time, and it just it was different. It wasn't like well, this is it, it was a different emotion than arriving at your first big deal fine dining kitchen. This this um this changed everything. It changed everything. Like it, like dessert became an irrelevant term, and the idea of uh, I I can't describe it. It was just such a condensed, um, intense experience. And sometimes Grant would say things to me, and I'd be like, "Well, what the hell? I, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about." And then I, I I admire his work now, years later, and I'm like, "Oh, he was talking about that seven years ago, and he just made it exist in a restaurant." Well. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, what, what he's done, it's, you couldn't replicate it. Does the, does the kitchen environment that you, that existed there, does it carry on in your own places or do you consider your places a completely different sort of experience? No, mine are very different managerially and and in every way, shape and form. My stuff is, I, I don't, I, I'm highly influenced, uh, by the people I've worked with, but we've, when I, the point of Empeon was, well, you, you're forcing yourself to start over. You're forcing yourself to start with a blank piece of paper because you have no experience in this. Think about it. You've never, you've never been a chef in a, you've never been a savory chef. You've never run a kitchen yourself and you have never cooked Mexican cuisine professionally. So, uh, you, you look to your past for inspiration um, to keep you going because you know how hard it all is. Uh, but but no, like we don't run our kitchens in any in any way similar to a place like WD-50 or, or Alinea. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about the current restaurants and everything that you're doing these days. Stay with us. We'll be right back here on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. That's 
Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Chef Alex Stupak. He's the owner and head chef of three Mexican restaurants in New York City, Empeon, El Pastor, and Taqueria. They all serve varying different menus at different price points. And uh, when you launched your first restaurant, there was quite a bit of surprise coming from the media community about the fact that uh, you had worked at so many highly revered restaurants and you had been, uh, you know, operating in this sort of specific realm. And then here you are, you're a white guy and you're going to cook Mexican food and and make tacos. Uh, Was there any fear and trepidation on your end about launching into this new realm? And also, um, did you look to anyone for counsel as you went to open your first uh, restaurant, something that you had never done before? Um, you talk to everybody, right? You, you talk to everyone who's gone into the business and you, you hear a million different opinions, uh, which I think is a good exercise to do. You realize later that everyone's journey is their own. And uh, although that what the advice they're giving you is valid, it may not be applicable to you. It's just, it's just different. But yeah, I, I, I had a lot of fear in a, about it. A lot of people were worried for me that like, well, no one's going to care about this. And see, I was worried opposite. And I think I was, I think people are going to care too much. I think they're going to make too big of a deal of it. And I was worried about that happening in tandem with quite frankly, look, I mean, the, the ambitions of Empeon still haven't been fully realized. And we were doing things backwards where like, typically you master a craft and then you go do that thing on your own. And, I haven't done that. I didn't do it with pastry. I, I made that. Up. I, I, I was, I've taught myself that. And now I'm teaching myself this. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like the, you open a restaurant and people were, it was so controversial that it was just blood in the water. And that's a very New York City thing that no one, look, if you're, if you're relevant, don't complain. But simultaneously, it's tough because they're, they're coming over the walls on day one and they're, they're expecting it to be great or they're, they're um, amping themselves up to tear it down immediately. Let's talk a little bit about those expectations, but not necessarily even on the customer side. Do you have uh, investors? How did you how did you work to to acquire those investors? I mean, you had a you had a profile. Obviously, people knew who you were. They knew the work that you were doing, but this probably wasn't as easy a sell as some people listening may think because. You went down a different direction. Very so, tough sell. So how did you sell that through? And uh, and which location was your first location? When did it open? And in what type of iteration was it exactly? Sure. So to the point of selling it, you know, I wrote the, you know, the classic business plan, which took me like forever to write. And it had all your spreadsheets and demographic research and all that. And I was just doing it like I was trying to I was cold calling anyone I could. Um, anyone I was told that had money and I was inviting him to do, and I was doing these very elaborate tasting menu style dinners in my, my apartment in Brooklyn. And everyone was saying the same thing. Everyone was saying, well, uh, I'm interested in, if you want to do like a quick serve restaurant that's during burritos, maybe I'm interested. And really the way I sold it was after doing so many shitty, insulting, um, investor dinners in my own home. I got to the point where I started speaking differently. I got to the point, once I started speaking like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But I'm not malleable in any way. Once I started speaking like that, which was the last dinner I did 
well, that's when I got my two business partners, and that's when they funded Empeon, and that's been that. It, that's how we did it. The first location uh, is in the West Village, um, and it's still there. It's still doing well. It's seven years old. We, when we opened it, it was just called Empeon. Um, I had, I opened my second restaurant way too quickly. I opened Cocina. Cocina was open and serving customers when Empeon Taqueria was only 11 months old. And I don't recommend ever doing that. And the reason I did it there, I, I chose to open the second one quickly for very poor reasons. Um, the first one became tremendously successful, but it, it, it immediately, uh, you don't realize this, but like, it's like, you only have so much say as a chef. I mean, you can have all the say, but you listen to your customers and you listen to your environment. And it became a very taco centric restaurant. And I had all this creative angst at like, well, I'm, I'm meant to do more. Um, I come from creative restaurants. And so that plus everyone telling me this isn't going to work, you're never going to get it open. It, that All of that plus the success of the first one pushed me to open a second restaurant way before I was ready. And that was Cocina. Um, when we opened Cocina, I had to differentiate Empeon, so I called it Empeon Taqueria, just to kind of state that it was a place known for tacos. I had vowed that Cocina was never going to serve a taco, and again, I wasn't thinking like a restaurateur. I was thinking like an ego-driven chef. So uh, next thing you know, it's like, by the way, East Village isn't down with that, and they're not necessarily down with your expensive entrees and your fancy plates and your fancy chairs, so we had to scramble really quick. Um, and again, it's I, I ultimately closed it after wrestling with it for five years because I could never truly make it what I had built it up to be in my head. I feel like if I can earn another shot, though, I think I'm going to get it just right the second time. Um, and I, it, it's, it's still a real restaurant in my head. And I think one day it's going to happen again. Do, do you find yourself these days more acting as chef or businessman? And I guess I, I know that you Obviously, you do things related to both every single day, but is the first thing you think about in the morning, all right, I'm going to walk through and check mise en place on stations, or is the first thing you think about, all right, I'm going to look at the books and then I got a meeting with my you know, business partner and you know, which part of your brain is turning on first and which is occupying more of your brain space on a day to day? Full disclosure, and it's not a sad thing, but as a chef, it can feel a little sad. It's the latter. Um, and it's not just about business versus food. I guess it's just um, more about in t total picture versus one facet of the restaurant. So this might piss another chef off to say it, but the, but the, the kitchen is one facet of a restaurant. It is not the entire restaurant. Um, and what I'm trying to do, and I mean, a big part of internally, a big part of doing such a big restaurant in Midtown was, okay, well, you have to grow to hire your awesome VP of operations and your awesome um, HR director. So part of the game was like, I found that there were all these things on my plate that now I'm trying to get back off because it's, it, it is currently it's um, to pick up a knife and, and cook a dish uninterrupted, create something. You have to schedule it, which sounds really weird. Um, and it feels really weird. So I guess it's kind of how, how do you return to that and, and have multiple units and responsibly look at everything? You know what I mean? You can't just as a, as a, as an owner, as a business owner, you can't just look at 
well, the kitchen's tight and that's all that matters. Well, what about, I don't know, like the, we have a beautiful wood floor in our brand new restaurant and six months later, it's all scratched up to hell and we need to completely figure out how to sand it and add varnish in it. The, the, the brand new bathrooms are trashed or, um, we're down a manager in the front of house or whatever. It's like they, they, they all have to be your problem. So you can kind of see where the, the cooking part of it could get diluted. It doesn't seem, though, that it has been diluted. And there's been quite a few dishes that have been uh, written about and, and covered lately beyond even the tacos, which are have been very well well respected and, and received. But uh, you have you mentioned you alluded to a, the strawberry dessert. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you have this sort of playful uh, avocado inspired dessert on your menu right now. These are things that seem like you're enjoying yourself and that your team is having a very good time. Can you talk about some dishes and the creative process uh, behind some dishes that are exciting you right now at any of your restaurants, tacos or otherwise? Anything? Sure. Um, we're, we're actually trying to make tacos, uh, which is impossible. Like. Tacos are brain hijackers. It's kind of like it's it's kind of like a restaurant like Peter Luger. It's like why don't they serve their burger, which is like the best burger ever? Why don't they serve it at dinner? Because maybe if they had years and years and years ago, um, they would have never gotten to be a steakhouse anymore. You know what I mean? A burger is a brain hijacker on menus. People default to burger. Um, unfortunately, people default to tacos. So and that's not. I mean, it's not a bad thing. We're we're proud of our tacos, but um, uh, it's about making the restaurant known for something else. So to the point of um, this avocado dessert you talked about, in a, in a visual age, in an Instagram age, um, how could we make something simple and visually striking that we believed it was our shot? Like this, this dessert's going to be, the restaurant's going to be known for this dessert, which means that we're, gonna gal- we're galvanizing our pastry program. We're making it a critical part of the restaurant to the point earlier when I said, well, we killed off all our pastry programs at other restaurants. I like, I was so certain not to do that again. Um, the creative process is changing where it's like, now we have really awesome chefs in our kitchen and I want them to cook. I want to see what they come up with. So rather than thinking of the dish, you spend more time thinking of the clear ethos and getting people to understand it, um, at, at a very, at a very deep level. Can another chef make an empeon dish? And that's what we're working towards now. But yes, we're having we're having fun in the kitchen, and we're really proud of the food and all the restaurants. As you as you have your third restaurant, you know, fully functional, and it's realized, and you're thinking towards what your fourth could be, whether it's going to be a you know a revamp of of the earlier project. Does any part of you want to move outside of the Mexican cuisine that you're working on with your restaurants? Do you have any other ideas brewing for a standalone concept of some kind that that might exist? Yeah, um, I have four ideas, and I and I've written them down. And one of them is for a, a different style of Mexican concept, um, which I may and I don't know if I'll ever do them. It's more matter like maybe one day I'll get to. Maybe one day I'll get to, but, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that Empeon, I'm extremely proud about Empeon and if Empeon was the only thing I ever worked on, but like for the record, that's not a sad story, but yeah, we definitely have, um, a plan B and a plan C that we're, we're thinking of. 
All right, little little secretive there, but I'll, I'll let you keep that. <laughs> I mean, that. I can't talk about concepts of that course, don't exist. Right, like. I'll, I'll let you keep those in, in your head for development at a later time. I read uh, an interview from a couple years ago where, uh, you know, it sounded like half like a joke, but half like you were serious. It said you went to Carbone and you felt jealous. So I'm curious, is there anything these days that you've gone that's that made you feel jealous? And if you go to a restaurant, is there anything from the room design to a dish where you say to yourself, like, you're just maybe tickled by the fact that you either can't wrap your head around it or it was simple and it still blew your mind? Is there anything in the last year that you've gone and checked out that's really kind of, as both a chef and now a restaurateur, that's really kind of like blown you away? I mean, without mentioning a particular place, I mean, just, and this might be the a grass is always greener mentality, but um, I'm, uh, I'm really jealous of Los Angeles and I'm really jealous of London right now. Um, and I was just at both those places recently and I'm, I'm already trying to figure out an excuse to go back. Um, to the point of walking in a restaurant, look, I, I've never gotten the design 100% right on the first go. I've never gotten the sound quality right or the, you know, you hear that restaurants are too noisy or the music is, is not quite right. I've never gotten all that stuff right. So anytime I walk into a restaurant where they nailed it on day one, yeah, I'm jealous because it's like, I, I always feel like I'm retroactively backtracking and trying to correct my, my stupid mistakes. Um, but yeah, I, in my, in my heart, I want to open, <coughs> I want to open one more restaurant in New York City, an Empeona, and that would be Costina. I kind of also have the idea I'd like to open some multiple Al Pastors in this city. Um, I just find myself loving hanging out there, and I think that's possibly because they're so, they're, they're just such simple models. There's so few employees, and they're just so fun to hang out in. And uh, this might sound bad, but honestly, they, they attract less of a foodie crowd. Um, which I'm really, <laughs> I'm really enjoying. Um, I think eaters, I, not just foodies. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's like, I, I, I think sometimes the foodies are, um, this might sound horrible, but sometimes I feel like they're your worst customer because I don't, I generally don't think they become regulars. And I think that they, I, I think they love to, you know, hate on you sometimes. Um, sure. I, I, like it, the idea of like bouncing from new restaurant to new restaurant, I don't know. Again, there's nothing wrong with it, but um, maybe that's why in my heart I'm thinking about opening some more Al Pastors because I feel like people just generally seem to enjoy them and they're they're easy for me to run and I like hanging out in, in mine and drinking in it. Um, but that's what we want to do. And then otherwise, yeah, I want to start going to other cities. I want to hear a little bit about the uh, the cookbook writing process. Uh, you created a, a beautiful cookbook with Jordana Rothman. Mm-hmm. Um it is called Tacos and Provocations. Can you speak a little bit about the process of crafting that? Uh, was it difficult for you? Uh, how much of yourself did you pour into that? And it's a very uh, difficult, introspective process to write a cookbook because you really have to let quite a bit of yourself out onto the page uh, because that's what people are looking for these days. So what was that process like? And uh, I mean, overall, it was tremendous. Jordana Rothman is the the best writer, um, in my opinion. And I'm sure I'm by, like, she's, she's also a dear friend of mine. Um, but her, the challenge with her, the filter, was that she questioned everything I said. I, so think about it this way. Like, she treats writing, writing something like, as if you're chiseling it into granite 
and it's there forever to be seen. So she would really push me and say, well, why? Why are we doing this? Like, back it up. And, I mean, it was it was tremendous in that way. I mean, it's tough, and, like, writing a cookbook feels like you're back in high school and you just have more homework than you've ever had in your life again, and you're doing that with, you know, restaurants and, and whatever else you have going on in your life. So in that way, you're definitely sleeping less and you're you're working more. You're doing more book work. But um, the, the experience of doing the cookbook actually changed the way I filter dishes where it's like now like if I look at my I look at one of my menus and I go well which one of these dishes would I not put in the book and I say I can't put it in the book because I wouldn't be able to back it up the way Jordana Rothman expected me to back it up with a philosophical reason behind it well then that kind of goes well then why the hell is it on the menu why are we serving it to customers anyways um so even though like right now I'm not actively working on book number two, I'm thinking about it, but it, it starts to change the way you actually edit the food itself, the, what's going on the plate and what's actually going in people's mouths. Over the years, as you, as you grow and you gain more experience and you, know, you can reach out to other uh, friends and colleagues that have had restaurants, are, are you in a process of self-evaluation with not only your food, but also your leadership style? Has that changed at all over time uh, in the kitchens? Do you have, um, is it, are you the same or are you different than you were a couple years ago when you launched your first restaurant in New York? Um, very different. And I'm still trying to personally get okay with it. I mean, I'll just speak truthfully. Like it just, as a chef, when you, once you go from restaurant one to restaurant two, meaning now you have two units, you, I went through the idea. I was the classic uh, chef of like, well, if I'm not in the kitchen, everything's going to be screwed up. But now let's just think about that for a second, because if you say that and you have two restaurants, what you're basically saying is that, well, one of my restaurants, at least one is always screwed up all the time because I'm not there. So you have to change that mentality, which means you have to go from, I mean, uh, an analogy, you have to go from writer to editor where you can create the ethos of the stories, but you also can um, disseminate that or delegate it, rather, and, and, and come around and edit it. And while you're doing that, um, I, I just what I've gone through as a chef, and I, like, you feel like a fake, you feel like a phony, you feel like a sellout, you feel like, well, I'm not on the line every single night, I'm not expediting every single night. Um, and even though you are doing work and you you are probably doing the most important work you can be doing for the restaurant, you you lose that feeling of, you know, I mean, think about it, for like for decades, you've been, you know, having a beer with 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 your fellow cooks at the end of the night and you don't get to do that anymore for for a host of reasons. You Or you can do it, but then you start you, you realize, well, this is silly. This isn't the best use of time right now. This isn't pushing the company forward. Um I'd be lying if I saying I still don't struggle with that. Just mentally, I feel like I do the right thing. I feel like I do the most important thing at the, at at that time. But it does feel weird to have, you know, three chef coats in three different restaurants, and you're putting one on, saying hello to people, you know, talking to your people, and then taking it off and walking out the back door, and then going to your next restaurant. It, it's a weird feeling. As you look forward to your. Uh to your potential next project and you continue to, to, you know, emphasize the growth of, and, you know, success of your existing restaurants. Do you feel like you still have something to prove to yourself? And do you have something to prove 
to the outside folks that, that look at the restaurant from the outside? And are those different things? No, they're, they're the same thing. Um, the, and I, I've never really talked about this. Um, the, the real goal of Empeon, we don't want this to be your favorite Mexican restaurant. We want it to be your favorite restaurant. Um, New York City has um, its cuisines that it's adopted or appropriated or built its own mutated versions of, and we want that for what we're doing. So until that's, in, until that's a reality, there, there's more work to do. Um, because I still believe that certain cuisines, I mean, I, I think French cuisine is the greatest example of this and how much it's freed itself and liberated itself without destroying authenticity or tradition, um, doing all those things where it's like we can go to Lyon and still get Lyonnaise food. It's still alive and well there. Um, but simultaneously, like, look at um, all these great French chefs who have come to New York City and done, um, it, I mean, it's clearly French-influenced, but it's also their food. It's very author-driven. With, with Mexican cooking, the dialogue um, on all sides still very much seems to be about tradition and authenticity. And to me, so long as those are the only parts of the discussion, you're holding it back. Um, you're holding it all back. Because innovation cannot destroy authenticity. Innovation cannot destroy um, tradition. Um, it, so, so, I mean, that's why we opened in Midtown. I mean, and I have a long lease there. So if 20 years from now, Empeon is your favorite restaurant in Midtown, not Smith and Walensky or not wherever, but be, not because you're in the mood for Mexican, but it's just your favorite restaurant. That's the goal. So we try to downplay the cultural aspects of it. And that's out of respect because we're, we're, I'm, I'm a white guy. I'm, I'm an outsider to it. So to me, it's all an homage to it. I hope that makes sense, but th that's what we're, we're trying to do. We're not trying to be the best Mexican restaurant. We're trying to be the best. We're trying to create a restaurant that no one else could replicate. I want to thank my guest today, Chef Alex Stupak, uh, for joining us on the program today. He has three restaurants in New York City, all at various price points. So kind of decide what you're in the mood for. Go online and check them out. Uh, they're in Midtown, the East Village, and the West Village. So sort of wherever you are, you can find them. Uh, do you want to give the address for uh, the one in Midtown? Yeah, it is 510 Madison Avenue. The entrance is on 53rd Street, and you can't miss it. It's huge. Again, my thanks to Chef Alex Stupak, and thank you all for listening. Join us next week at 11 a.m. for another episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.